Who gets the roads? It's embarrassing how how behind we are. Who gets the land? The urban development boundary is not set in stone. A yes vote says that money is more important than life. Familiar South Florida battles underway. It has become increasingly clear that you get what you plan for. The mayor on the front lines joins us live. They are not enforcing our immigration laws. They are not doing it. Shots across the bow. Senator Rick Scott aims at the Biden administration over Cuba and the border. I've got a plan to try to change the direction of the country. Does that plan include a run for president? The senator in a one-on-one -on -one exclusive. Property insurance is really the number one crisis facing the state of Florida right now. A special session on property insurance. It starts tomorrow. What's in store? The big stories of the week live this week in South Florida. Good morning. Glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putney, and I'm glad to be back. We're glad you're back. I'm Glenna Milberg. We begin with short-term attention to long-term problems faced by every neighborhood in South Florida. But this week, all at once in Miami-Dade, a sudden focus on road safety because of the two cyclists most recently killed on the Rickenbacker, a causeway used for so much more than commuting. And this week, a day-long fight ensued before the Miami-Dade Commission over whether to allow a big project to be built beyond the urban development boundary line. Also up for discussion this week, the mayor's plan to build about $70 million worth of affordable housing. It has been an eventful week for Miami-Dade Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava, and she joins us live for an eventful 10 or 12 minutes. Good morning, Mayor. <laughs> Good morning. Great to be with you. We are so so glad you are. Uh, Mayor Levine Cava, let's talk about uh, what's going on first on the Rickenbacker Causeway, this tragic accident last week where these two uh, residents uh, died when they were hit by a vehicle. Uh, this weekend, you have beefed up the police presence on the causeway. You've lowered the speed limit. These are all good measures, but they are clearly temporary stopgap measures. What is the long-term solution? Clearly, we cannot tolerate this kind of danger on our roadways for our pedestrians and for our cyclists. And we need everybody to work together to truly get to vision zero. So you're right. These are immediate, urgent, short-term measures that we've put on top of what we had as existing protections. And we've gotten very good feedback. We've had hundreds of communications with people crossing the causeway. We have protected the most dangerous spots uh, with some barriers, the speed limit reduction, uh, and so on. But we will be installing some uh, midterm solutions, some more barriers, and we'll be planning for long-term improvements on the causeway. Uh, there, a public process has begun. We're working together with the village of Key Biscayne. We'll be convening with bicycle activists uh, all this week. We're, we're looking to really engage and get the best possible thinking. Uh, and I've allocated short-term funding to make sure that we can get it done at the same time as we plan for an effective long-term protection. So, Mayor, let me, um, let's just stipulate a couple of things. Number one, South Florida drivers are among the worst in the nation, and I say that with all love and respect, and, and they are. And so the barriers that are there that are cones are probably not any safer or much more safer for bicyclists than the plastic sticks on the high-speed lanes on I-95 that people roll over. And, and uh, again, I say this very respectfully, there are people, the, uh, 
some of the opposition, I'll call them, who say nothing gets done until someone gets killed. And, and in this case on the Rickenbacker, they happen to have a point there. It, it's, a, it's a problem throughout South Florida when you have big, beautiful, scenic roadways and a lot of people who like recreation. So we're talking sort of big picture here, but very focused on the Rickenbacker, where there was a long-term plan in the works until late last year, early this year. It's called Plan Z for a wholesale redo of the Rickenbacker that, that kind of, my understanding is, got bogged down in competing interests. So how do you break that logjam and go forward? You know, the process that we have for unsolicited bids is very um, uh, difficult to maneuver, and there were lots of concerns that arose after uh, the, the bid uh, was moving forward. So it was really necessary to stop and listen again to the public. So we did that with the support not only of the village of Key Biscayne, but many of the users of the causeway uh, bicyclists who uh, had a lot of changes that they would have like to see, and we were not able to do it within the confines of that procurement. So it was necessary to start again. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, we are always working in conjunction with the public, getting their feedback. Even today, we're getting feedback on the exact positioning of these barriers, which are, are proving effective, let me say, Glenna, because we have major signage, we do have the increased enforcement, and we just need to cope with distracted drivers. Yeah, uh, Mayor Levine, kind of a, it's clear that uh, although painted bike lanes are good and provide some kind of perhaps safety element, that uh, at some points on the Rickenbacker Causeway, a barrier wall seems to be the only answer. Uh, I mean, where this couple was tragically killed last week was at a point where it's kind of confusing to drivers. Uh, it right. does appear to have been an accident. But anyway, the, the answer do you believe is at some points along there a, a wall between bicyclists and runners and drivers? We have recreational riders and we have super fast packs of riders. Mm -hmm. And we're looking for a, a solution that will protect everyone. So some people are asking for wider uh, bicycle uh, amenities. Uh, certainly Plan Z had a specific um, separated substantial corridor for bicyclists. So we'll be looking at all of that in terms of a long-term solution. We have 50 other spots we've identified as top priorities. And through our Vision Zero, we're going to be moving aggressively throughout the county on these safety measures. You know, um, we had a, you said you were working with Key Biscayne's mayor. There's so many stakeholders in this yeah. causeway, the Key Biscayne commuters and the bikers and the windsurfers who, and the kids who and Mass Academy. You know, um, the mayor of Key Biscayne, I had asked him, you know, would you be open to lowering the speed limit? And, you know, he was quite honestly saying, you know, my residents don't want the speed limit lowered because it started out as they're in and out. They have one way in and out. Um, and so ha talk about it is speed. You have enforcement out there this morning, but, you know, we all know that enforcement like that kind of entrenched enforcement, it can't go long term. Um, so how... How much of an issue is the speed limit and how much of a debate is that component going to be? For now, we lower the speed limit. We think with for good cause and with good results. And definitely it will be something we're exploring. Uh, look, lives are the most important thing here. Obviously, convenience, expedience is important, but not at the expense of lives. So we're going to be exploring every, every option. 
Uh, Mayor Levine Cava, if we can, I want to move on to this big South Dade warehouse project, the South Dade Logistics Technology District that was proposed, and it's still on the table. It was only deferred the vote this week. Uh, you oppose that. Uh, and it appears that right now not enough commissioners support it, so it was deferred at the request of the developer and their attorney. Uh, what's wrong with this? I mean, South Aid does need an economic shot in the arm. This would provide its estimated, you know, at least five or 6,000 jobs. So what's wrong with this? It, pretty much everything is wrong with it, uh, to, be, to be clear. You have to show need. We have a master plan for a reason. We have limited space, but we also have environmental needs. Our water needs to be protected. Our agriculture, our second biggest economic driver, needs to be protected. And we are moving aggressively to create more opportunities inside the urban development boundary. Uh, and we have sufficient land for the kind of development that was proposed. So all in all, there's no demonstrated need, and that is the main criterion that our planning department applies in recommending denial. But they're not alone. We have uh, Senator Marco Rubio, who co-authored an op-ed with me on the subject. We have the Department of, of Agriculture at the state. The, um, uh, we, we had the Everglades uh, watchdog agency at the federal government rejecting it, the Miccosukee tribe, um, so many local stakeholders, cities that weighed in throughout Miami-Dade County. So. Yeah, and if I could, if I could, excuse me, if I could jump in yeah. during this, and Glenna was there, but I also watched and I heard some residents of South Dade. One woman said, "My daughter commutes two to three hours a day to go to somewhere in Miami-Dade County from South Dade. If she could get a job here, you know, all of our lives, her uh, income would be better." I mean, there are a lot of sure. people down there who have make a strong argument for a better economic future. So as commissioner of District 8 and South Dade, I have been a strong proponent for economic development. We've pushed hard to bring jobs to the area that would assist in the, the local economy for sure. People would ideally live closer to uh, uh, where they work. That to be said, we also have rapid transit coming to South Dade at great expense and with great anticipation, bus rapid transit that will substantially reduce uh, uh, commute times. And the bottom line is we have space for the programs that have been proposed without clear evidence of what are the businesses that are coming, what are the actual number of jobs that can be guaranteed. That was not clearly uh, presented as a case. And finally, with what damage potentially to our environment, which is our economy ultimately. Mayor, I, I want to real. this is such a fascinating subject, and I encourage anyone who is not at that meeting to call <laughs> it up and watch the last 10 minutes, because this was, this is a question about, it's about development versus protected lands, yes, but it's about specifically moving the urban development boundary that this commission set in place 40-something, about 40 years ago. Um, for a project, and th this is not meant to be pro or con for the project, but you you sort of were alluding to the fact that there are very specific rules in place to meet, to move the line. And yes. the need is, uh, yes. is there that yes. kind of land 
inside the urban development boundary so that it tr this project truly does not need to move it? Does that land exist within the boundary? It was amply proven that the acreage that was requested exists within the boundary. Not to mention that a good half of the proposed project land is not even available to them. And the owner of that land came down to make that very, very clear. So this is a concept. Uh, this is, uh, some have called it a dream. It is not an actual fully assembled project. And it's premature. In 2040, this land will be considered as what they call the urban expansion area for future development. We have the land to do these projects inside the urban development line right now. So if it's okay, let's just take a two minute break. We're up against a little bit of a break because the, I really want to get into what happened politically in that last 10 minutes of the meeting when we come right back. Stay tuned. Very good. This week in South Florida. back with Miami-Dade Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava talking about this really curious vote at the commission over whether to move the urban development boundary. Mayor, that needs a 9 of 13 votes. It came down after a whole day of a packed house and a lot of debate on both sides and presentations. And there was no motion to move the line. Instead, Commissioner Danielle Cohn-Higgins, your successor in that district, made a motion to not move it forward, uh, couldn't get that vote, and then the land use attorney, the zoning attorney who is behind this got up and said, hey, let's defer it. And a majority of your colleagues gave him that vote, so it's deferred instead of a loss. What do you make of that? You know, when there is a will to move something forward, there is often a delay given. I think what was particularly unique about the situation is that it was clear it was only being deferred to try to flip the votes of a couple of the commissioners. I, I have not seen that before. And I think that um, it was clear that uh, we had strong support from half of the commission to not move this project forward. They fully understood the implications of it, the bad precedent that it would set and I only hope that they can stay strong in the face of tremendous pressure uh, leading up to June 1st. Madam Mayor, let's move on to a subject uh, on which you have spent so much time this week particularly, and that is housing that is affordable for people who are working uh, but don't make enough money to qualify for other subsidies. And this week you announced something called the Building Block Fund, and altogether, it's got $70 million to help people get into a home, particularly first-time home buyers. Explain to us how this would work. I'm super excited about this, Michael. We've been working on this for some time. It aggregates funds from a number of for-profit and non-profit developer uh, funds, right? It's about investing. It's giving money to projects to make sure that they can move forward quickly. We have affordable housing projects that stall for lack of that last dollar. And with this extra infusion of dollars across these different contributing donors, we are going to get these projects accelerated. We're expecting more than 70 million. It's an open invitation and we've had inquiries. People are excited because they understand the huge need 
and they know that they can truly contribute to uh, increasing the supply, which is ultimately what we need to bring the prices down. Are you talking, the, the people being, that are getting excited, you're talking about developers? Yes, I'm developers because they know it, it can make their projects move forward quickly. Uh, funders, because they see that they can have an impact on, an, on a market and they want, they want to contribute to a solution in a particularly hard hit area. And obviously to the general public that's waiting desperately in line to get homes that they can afford. So, so let me just ask you a, a kind of a long, longer term vision. When you say affordable housing, you build it, people qualify for it, they move into affordable housing. If there is like, you know, New Yorkers know what rent control is, what mm. happens after the first year, second year, fifth year, tenth year, when you watch South Florida rents and costs balloon yeah. for homeowners? What happens to the affordable housing? How does it stay affordable? So these are projects that are built with subsidies that require long-term affordability. We're talking for rent. Mayor succumbing to technology. We have uh, <laughs> the live Zoom has ended for some reason that we don't know, but we're going to roll with it. Take a quick break and stay tuned. We'll be right back with Rick Scott. Well, happily, we can say we have reestablished contact with Mayor Daniela <laughs> Levine Cava. Mayor Cava, we apologize for the brief, brief break. Let me ask you, if I may, about another program that uh, I learned about only this week that you've been working on from the Miami-Dade Economic Advocacy Trust Home Ownership Assistance Program. Man, that's a mouthful, or HAP, and it would allow buyers, first-time home buyers, to buy a home or a condo that cost up to $318,000 with only one, two, three percent down uh, and no closing costs. I mean, boy, this is miraculous. How, how, does this, how does this work? Well, we have a wonderful MDEET to abbreviate it and a new uh, president uh, that is Bill Diggs. And this is a great program. And we have many other great programs. So one of the things that our new Office of Housing Advocacy is going to do is aggregate all those programs in one place so that everybody can get access to them. We're also asking our cities to let us know when they have affordability in the pipeline. We want everyone to have full knowledge, full navigation support to get into a home that they can afford. Our future, our economy depends upon it. Has there been any blowback? I feel like I'm always the one asking that pesky reporter question. Any, uh, any sort of opposition? This seems like something everybody can get on board with. Actually, no. I've even had realtors and uh, people who uh, help people to find uh, rental apartments tell me that they're grateful for the Tenants' Bill of Rights to tell me how excited they are to be able to have more resources to help people. We're, we're in this together. The whole community knows that uh, we are in an affordability crisis, and if we don't work together to solve it, we will all hurt. Yeah. How true. Mayor Daniela Levine Cava, always a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for your time this morning. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks, Michael. You're welcome. All right, up next, Florida Senator Rick Scott. He is on a roll, as it were, this week. With President Biden in his sights, our one-on-one -on -one with the senator is next.
The war of words ramped up this week big time between President Biden and Florida Senator Rick Scott. The senator says the president is unfit to hold office. He has called on Mr. Biden to resign because of his failure to handle issues like inflation. He doesn't like his new Cuba policy. And then there are immigration issues at the southern border. We talked with Senator Scott this week before he headed for New Hampshire, which, as you know, is the first state in the nation to hold presidential primaries. And so we started there with his prospects for 2024. I was telling my team that we were going to talk today and they all wanted to know whether you have made a decision about 24, whether you're going to run for president or not, or what needs to happen to make that happen. I have no, I have no plans to run for president. I'm, I, you know, I'm focused on my job as a U.S. senator. I've got, um, you know, I've done that. I've got a plan to try to change the direction of the country. So I'm focused on that right now. Okay, fair enough. At least I, I will pass that along to the team. So, um, Senator, I wanted to talk about this week, uh, President Biden unveiled some new moves as to Cuba policy, something critically important to our viewers and so many with such a personal stake. And you have been among the biggest critics of what essentially is a rollback of some of the hardest line items um, and, and what the president has framed these new moves as is not only support for the people of Cuba, but also our own national security when it comes to immigration. So what, what are your criticisms specifically? Well, th this is just pure appeasement of the, uh, the Castro regime. I mean, this doesn't do anything to help the people of Cuba. We've got 1,300 peaceful protesters, some as young as 14 years old, uh, that uh, are in prison. Uh, they're being tortured. Um, people like Jose Daniel Ferre, they're being tortured. They're, be you know, they, you know, the Cuban administration wants to kill them. Did they do anything to help any of these individuals? No. And and by the way, this appeasement of the Castro regime has never worked. So uh, the, you know, to, it just well, doesn't to, work. To your point, um, the. The changes leave in place the embargo, which many of the opponents have argued has not worked. Um, you, what you frame as appeasement, I, I want to drill down a little bit in that, because some of the components of these new changes are directed really at the Cuban population. Family reunification, opening up of travel of cities outside Havana, uh, investments, private investments in the Cuban people's private businesses. No, no doubt the Cuban government is hands-on and will most certainly, by all accounts, have some benefit to that. But the, the actual components of this Biden plan, much like the Obama plan that he was part of, is really aimed at the people of Cuba. Do you not see any sort of compromise vis-a-vis -vis not black or white hard line or appeasement, but some compromise policy that might assist the Cuban people um, without directly appeasing the Cuban government? Well, I think it's positive that you work to reunify um, families. I think, that, I think that's actually a positive. But let's look at this. This is going to be more money for the Castro regime. That's all this, uh, all that's going to end up happening. It's not going to help the people. You take, you know, there's a lady in Miami I know that she got her hand chopped off, um, stuck in the mud so she would uh, get an infection and die. And this was after um, Obama's appeasement before. And when they, oh, you know, this, we're going to work together. This is all going to get better. No. And you know what she did wrong? All she did was complain about school being closed. So this is going to be more money for the government, more money for their the you know the the their police to you know and and think about 
did we get anything? Was there anything that says, oh, we're going to we're going to let these people out of prison. Oh, we're going to have you and we're going to let people visit them. There's nothing, nothing. I mean, so do we got not get anything for the people that believe in democracy there? Nothing. Well, this and by the way, you know, in this, Glenn, this, this, I'll tell you, this makes me mad. So last summer after after the, uh, the protest, so the, I, I pushed the State Department to say, we've got to get the Internet back on. They said, absolutely. OK, so that's what, 10 months ago, they've done nothing. And now they said, oh, they're going to invest with some entrepreneurs on the Internet. No, they're not. I mean, this is just pure appeasement. By the way, Biden does not care about Latin America and he doesn't care about democracy. He doesn't care about it, whether it's Cuba, whether it's Venezuela, whether it's Colombia, whether it's Nicaragua, anywhere. He those, doesn't those care. Are, Senator, I know those, those are some very harsh words. And there is, you know, there are always two sides to the Cuba question um, that we've been dealing with really and reporting about in my lifetime. But I, I want to just bring it back to the actual announcement this week and the component of this announcement that has to do with what the Biden administration calls national security and the intent of the effort to try to better conditions for people in Cuba so that they don't need to or want to leave. And that comes from some staggering numbers that we've been seeing, um, not only through the Straits, but over the southern border of Cubans coming into the United States. And so I, I would I want to hear your take on this component of immigration and national security and the opportunity to do things in Cuba that, that might better the quality of life for people there so that they do not leave? Well, first off, that's a decision for the Castro regime. They could make the lives of Cuban citizens better. All right. It, do, I, do I believe that we ought to come up with a way that people can legally immigrate from Cuba? Absolutely. This is a decision, though, by the, by the Cuban regime. And by the way, They've never told us exactly how they harmed so many people in our embassy, um, you know, and, and which which caused the problem in the first place. And they've not told us how this is going to get fixed now. Uh, I believe and the they've Cuban never taken responsibility. There's nothing. I believe the Cuban government said that they were not responsible for the. the you're talking about the sonic, the sonic right. um, aud auditory attacks. Well, then who is? I mean, by the way, it's a totalitarian government. They control everything that happens there, okay? And they just say, oh, so, oh, yeah, so, so, yeah, we, we, it wasn't us, so don't worry. I mean, it's like talking to the Chinese who lie to us every day. So, oh, no, that fentanyl, well, oh, yeah, we're cracking down on that. No, they're not, just like Cuba does. It. I, everything I that to, comes out of the Castro regime's mouth is a lie. I want to uh, let, go back to immigration for a minute uh, and, and bring it up a to sort of a larger issue of border and immigration and Title 42. We, we are talking on Wednesday. Um, as of next week, Title 42, which is the component of the U.S. Code that allows a health emergency to be the reason for uh, deporting migrants without asylum claims, that unless a judge extends that, that is set to end next week on Monday. Um, there are this emergency mode that deport, to deport most migrants has been in effect. I mean, we've seen we've seen it with our own eyes thousands and thousands of people being summarily deported. Um, this is sort of a uh, a component of what the DHS secretary said this week is 
uh, uh, preparing for a surge at the border when that happens. Um, and I wonder if you would address what the administration is doing right now, surging resources there, according to the DHS Secretary Mayorkas, uh, sending personnel, sending medical support. What are you expecting? Well, I expect Mayorkas to continue to lie. I mean, this is a guy, when he came into office, uh, promised me that he was going to enforce the existing laws of the country. He is not. What hasn't he enforced? He's not he enforcing enforced? our asylum laws. What, I'm sorry, they, they Senator, they what, shut, what hasn't he enforced specifically? Okay, one, he doesn't, he doesn't enforce the asylum laws. He shut down construction of the wall, shut down shut down things like we, we had paid with your tax dollars. We had paid for not the wall. We had paid for lights and cameras and roads. Just shut it all down. Shut down the electricity. Right. I mean, what he all I mean, what he does is he he comes and, you know, all he's doing is processing people faster. He's not securing us. Think about what's happened since he since he took the job. We had, I think, one hundred and eight thousand people die of drug overdoses. We just lost a National Guard member that was trying to save migrants coming across. And guess what they found? The National Guard member died and the migrants were bringing drugs in. You know, we've we, had um, 45 members of Glenn, this gets worse. We have 45 members of ter the terrorist, ter people on the terrorist watch list caught. How many have we not caught? I mean, the border, Glenn, go to the border. It's open. It's, it's just open. I, I actually, That's what it is right um, now. I've actually been to the border in September. We were there when um, tens of thousands of, of Haitians were coming in. Uh, truthfully, I did not see an open border at that spot at that time. Um, but I, I pulled one of the, actually, uh, their, your numbers, National Republican Senatorial Committee numbers, of which you are the chair. Uh, so I pulled some numbers from April, 234,000 encounters at the border, almost uh, roughly half um, of release, half were released, half were removed under Title 42. So I, I want to just be clear that the encounters at the border not are, are illegal they're not all illegal immigrants. These are oh, people absolutely who can, not. right? Look, they can apply for asylum. If, so yeah, but but Glennon, Glennon, here's the deal. I want I I'm I'm from an immigration state. I believe in legal immigration. I want people to come and live our dream to come here. But you know what? I don't want. I'm sick and tired of hearing stories because I feel so sorry for these moms that lost their kids because they took one drug laced with fentanyl. Right? They shouldn't have bought the. They shouldn't have bought the drug online. They, sh they shouldn't have bought the whatever it was. They're they're dead now. Okay, we're story after story. And you know what? The Biden administration does nothing. Does Senator? absolutely nothing. Glenda, I mean, it's so bad. As, as example, we brought. Did you know how many people came from Afghanistan? You know how they picked them? Who was at the airport? They are not enforcing our immigration laws. They are not doing it. Period. Senator, I hear you, and um, I'm being told that we have to go. So I just want to let you know how much we value your time always to be with us, and I hope you will again soon. Okay, bye-bye, Glenna. Bye. And just a note, uh, days after we did that interview, a federal judge did block the Biden administration's attempt to end Title 42. And so as we speak, it is still in effect. All right, T-minus 24 hours to the open of another special session in Tallahassee. This one to fix what some are calling Florida's looming crisis. Property insurance windstorm, the whirlwind attempt to shore up the insurance companies and contain costs. We'll have a preview. That's next.
Property insurance in Florida is now approaching a crisis stage. The premiums are skyrocketing, claims are up, and at least four companies that write these insurance policies have gone out of business. Starting tomorrow, state lawmakers will be meeting in Tallahassee special session five days to try to straighten out this insurance mess. The governor actually promised significant reform. How possible is that in just one week? We want to talk about that with Representative Tom Fabricio, Republican of Miramar. He has been so in the weeds with a lot of the <laughs> negotiations leading up to this session. Representative Fabricio, so glad to have you back with us today. Tom, thank you so much, Glenn and Michael. Thank you for joining us. Uh, you write in today's Miami Herald in an op-ed, quote, the complex home insurance market is on the verge of collapse. So what will you and your fellow lawmakers do in the next five days to rebuild this uh, critical industry and protect consumers? Right, thank you so much, Michael. So as you know, we've had quite a few insolvencies this year uh, and actually at last year as well. Uh, creating less and less, uh, a market with less and less insurance carriers to provide coverage for homeowners. The, the idea and the main thrust of everything that we're working on is to create a market where we could work to ultimately lower homeowners insurance premiums for property owners in Florida. That's well, the idea. Well, that is and, the idea, but how, how do you do it when there are so many fraudulent claims that are filed and then lawyers uh, greedy lawyers, I must say. You are a lawyer. You're not a greedy one. But, you know, we, we have uh, lawyers who are using these fee multipliers. They're getting paid a huge amount of money. How do you deal with all that? Well, I, I think one of the main things that we can do once we stop the hemorrhaging, which I believe we're going to get done with a reinsurance assist program, a pol uh, policy program that we're going to hopefully get in place, uh, one thing that we're going to be doing is limiting how that attorney fee multiplier um, is applied to cases uh, that uh, the prevailing party attorney's fees uh, would come into play. Uh, and that that multiplier is, I, I believe, in my, my humble opinion, uh, one of the biggest causes and one of the biggest motivating factors for the fact that we have about three quarters of the entire country's litigation here in Florida. Um, and that's uh, unfortunately an obscene amount of of litigation uh, regarding these issues. And I think, I believe um, that that's one of the driving forces with the insolvencies that we're seeing. You know, uh, Representative, the first time that you told me that about a month ago, that was just eye-popping to me. You did a little digging into that. Um, Barry Gilway, the head of Citizens, the insurer of Last Resort, actually agrees with you, talks all about runaway litigation as being the cost driver. And I see that one of the bills that fall, all the 11th hour bills, I, Truthfully, they were filed so late. I'm still trying to digest them and read through them, but one of them really does address the inspections of roofs deemed to be needing new or repair, which is uh, the whole roof issue mm -hmm. um, is really what is driving, according to you and those in the know, these litigation settlements, high dollar law, uh, law processes driving up the premiums. And since then, I've seen, because now I know to look for them, I've seen these advertisements of contractors and roofing companies actually advertising, hey, let us come look at your roof and see yeah. if we can replace it. How do you get around that? Well, so look, we never want to infringe on anybody's First Amendment rights. 
uh, that's you know critically important. Uh, but in 2021, we uh, we passed Senate Bill 76, uh, which attempted to address that issue of roof claim solicitation. Um, it, that that uh, part of Senate Bill 76 was um, stopped by the courts in uh, in large part, and work with the bill package that we're moving forward with. Uh, this coming week, we hope to clean up some of the issues that the courts have trouble with and uh, require that there be notices put on any kind of roof solicitation, advertisements, and things of that nature. We've also, we're also looking to harden and create uh, criminal laws for folks that mm -hmm. try to uh, create false claims and try to create misleading claims, uh, which is insurance fraud. Uh, and uh, we can't stand for insurance fraud, especially when insurance fraud uh, is part of the problem, which is causing uh, these premiums to go up for homeowners. And it's causing the carriers to harden their underwriting guidelines uh, to limit, uh, to reduce coverage. We want to have homeowners have reasonably priced premiums, uh, competitive premiums, and we want to be able to give them as much coverage as they require. Uh, and But we cannot allow uh, folks to game the system. We can't allow that. That's just absolutely unpermitted. And uh, that's one of the things that we're going to do to combat some of these fraudulent root claims. I, I feel like um, I just want to throw out there that I've called a couple of attorneys who do this to find out about this. Um, and one in particular who is based in Miami-Dade who actually has the distinction of filing the most <laughs> claims in the state and they uh, he and they are very adamant that they file claims that are legitimate and the finger pointing is something that they are really opposing I just wanted to throw that out there well I'm, I'm look I'm not pointing fingers at anybody any one person in particular um, but unfortunately there are there are folks who are soliciting uh, roof claims uh, there are claims that have uh, that come across that are not meritorious there are claims that are expanded uh, beyond the scope of what the what the facts support. However, that's not to say that there have also been insurance carriers that haven't uh, paid claims that are meritorious. Uh, they have to play, pay those claims as well. It's a balanced issue. Uh, all parties need to fall in line, but the, what's incredibly important to take away from all this right now is that we are facing insurance carriers going insolvent, more insurance carriers likely to be going insolvent if we don't pass this legislation. Uh, now at the, on June 1 uh, starts the hurricane season. Uh, we need to get this going so more policyholders don't fall into citizens and we can have a healthy insurance market uh, going forward. Yeah, Tom, uh, as you mentioned earlier, citizens property insurance is supposed to be the insurer of last resort. But as these other companies have gone insolvent, uh, most of their clients have gone on to citizens and they are about to reach one million clients, one million uh, customers. And do they have enough money? I mean, if God forbid Florida has another Hurricane Andrew, uh, is there enough money in the catastrophe fund to cover the claims that would uh, result? So. As you mentioned, Citizens is the insurance carrier of last resort in Florida. That's It means it's the residual carrier. It's created by the Florida statutes. It's not an insurance company uh, like State Farm or Universal or any of the other carriers in the state of Florida. It's part of the Florida government. And ha going beyond a million policies is critically 
uh, that's a big, that's a very important number for us to to uh, to keep in mind because if we do have a terrible storm that comes up the coast and and, and God forbid it occurs and creates a huge catastrophe, uh, citizens may have to assess all other homeowners insurance policies by other carriers, mm-hmm. uh, not only homeowners insurance policies. They would have to assess other other commercial general liability policies and other auto policies to pay the claims of uh, the the loss that citizens would have to cover at that point. So what's in the best interest of the state of Florida is to have a healthy insurance market with uh, private capital coming into Florida to underwrite that risk as occurs in the other 49 states. And I think we can get there. I believe that the policies uh, in the in the um, in the legislation package that we're looking at going into this special session will by and large do that. Uh, is it a panacea? I can't tell you it is, but uh, I think it's a heck of a step forward uh, to getting the market and uh, getting the insurance market in Florida uh, in a condition where uh, premiums will ultimately come down for Floridians. You know, that was actually going to be my next question because there's no way of getting around it. This whole industry to understand it, especially for lay people, is so complicated and so many moving parts. And there are the insur- the health of the insurers is such a, a big component, as you're just talking about. Whatever happens, it sounds like a foregone conclusion that homeowners, property owners, by default down the line, the renters too, everyone's affected, will most likely be paying more into for on the back end for damages absorbing more of the costs in order to bring down these unaffordable skyrocketing premiums is that fair to project do you think well the the package that i'm looking at the legislation package that i'm looking at uh and in particular there are certain uh certain provisions with regard to uh the reinsurance assist to assist policyholders uh program uh, that would uh, directly require insurance carriers that avail themselves of that, I think, $2 billion uh, to reduce the cost of their reinsurer. They would have to pass on some percentage of that uh, reduced priced reinsurance to the consumers. So, and again, our goal ultimately, without getting too much into the weeds here, uh, is to create a healthy market where homeowners insurance premiums will be coming down in a more natural way. And one of the things that unfortunately we have to do because we have three quarters of the country's litigation here in Florida is take steps to level the playing field. Uh, and those that attorney fee multiplier, the way it has been applied and the way it's threatened in most cases, unfortunately, is one of the things that's accelerating these uh, the litigation in Florida. And so hopefully we expect that this is gonna bring down litigation I hope that this will uh, this will attract more capital markets to the state of Florida to underwrite insurance, and this will ultimately reduce premiums for homeowners. Well, we hope so, and we hope you and your fellow legislators somehow do get some significant reform. The governor promised that we will be watching what happens. So, Tom Fabricio, as always, thanks for your time this morning. Great to have you. Thanks. Thank you so much, Glenn and Michael. Have okay. a great week. And good luck in Tallahassee. <laughs> We'll be right back.
To rewatch today's interviews or listen to the This Week in South Florida podcast, all you have to do is grab your phone, bring it right to the screen, scan this QR code with your phone, and it takes you right to the This Week in South Florida section of Local10.com. We thank you so much for being with us as always. And remember, we are always online 24-7 at Local10.com. And remember, as always, stay informed, get involved, go heat, white hot. <laughs>